0: chapter nineteen of chrome yellow by aldous huxley this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter nineteen henry wimbush's long cigar burned aromatically the history of chrome lay on his knee slowly he turned over the pages i can't decide what episode to read you tonight he said thoughtfully Sir Ferdinando's voyages are not without interest. Then, of course, there's his son, Sir Julius. It was he who suffered from the delusion that his perspiration engendered flies. It drove him finally to suicide. Or there's Sir Cyprian. He turned the pages more rapidly. Or Sir Henry. Or Sir George. No, I'm inclined to think I won't read about any of these. But you must read something, insisted Mr. Scogan, taking his pipe out of his mouth i think i shall read about my grandfather said henry wimbush and the events that led up to his marriage with the eldest daughter of the last sir ferdinando good said mr scogan we are listening before i begin reading said henry wimbush looking up from the book and taking off the pince-nez which he had just fitted to his nose before i begin i must say a few preliminary words about sir ferdinando the last of the lapeth at the death of the virtuous and unfortunate sir hercules ferdinando found himself in possession of the family fortune not a little increased by his father's temperance and thrift he applied himself forthwith to the task of spending it which he did in an ample and jovial fashion by the time he was forty he had eaten and above all drunk and loved away about half his capital and would infallibly have soon got rid of the rest in the same manner if he had not had the good fortune to become so madly enamoured of the rector's daughter as to make a proposal of marriage the young lady accepted him and in less than a year had become the absolute mistress of crome and her husband an extraordinary reformation made itself apparent in sir ferdinando's character he grew regular and economical in his habits he even became temperate rarely drinking more than a bottle and a half of port at a sitting the waning fortune of the lapiths began once more to wax and that in spite of the hard times for sir ferdinando married in eighteen o nine in the height of the napoleonic wars a prosperous and dignified old age cheered by the spectacle of his children's growth and happiness for lady lapith had already borne him three daughters and there seemed no good reason why he should not bear many more of them and sons as well a patriarchal decline into the family vault seemed now to be sir ferdinando's enviable destiny but providence willed otherwise to napoleon cause already of such infinite mischief was due though perhaps indirectly the untimely and violent death which put a period to this reformed existence sir ferdinando who was above all things a patriot had adopted from the earliest days of the conflict with the french his own peculiar method of celebrating our victories when the happy news reached london it was his custom to purchase immediately a large store of liquor and taking a place on whichever of the outgoing coaches he happened to light on first to drive through the country proclaiming the good news to all he met on the road and dispensing it along with the liquor at every stopping-place to all who cared to listen or drink thus after the nile he had driven as far as edinburgh and later when the coaches wreathed with laurel for triumph with cypress for mourning were setting out with the news of nelson's victory and death he sat through all a chilly october night on the box of the norwich meteor with a nautical keg of rum on his knees and two cases of old brandy under the seat this genial custom was one of the many habits which he abandoned on his marriage the victories in the peninsula the retreat from moscow leipzig and the abdication of the tyrant all went uncelebrated it so happened however that in the summer of eighteen fifteen sir ferdinando was staying for a few weeks in the capital there had been a succession of anxious doubtful days then came the glorious news of waterloo it was too much for sir ferdinando his joyous youth awoke again within him he hurried to his wine merchant and bought a dozen bottles of seventeen sixty brandy the bath coach was on the point of starting he bribed his way on to the box and seated in glory beside the driver proclaimed aloud the downfall of the corsican bandit and passed about the warm liquid joy they clattered through uxbridge slough maidenhead sleeping redding was awakened by the great news at didcot one of the ostlers was so much overcome by patriotic emotions and the 1760 brandy that he found it impossible to do up the buckles of the harness the night began to grow chilly and sir ferdinando found that it was not enough to take a nip at every stage to keep up his vital warmth he was compelled to drink between the stages as well they were approaching swindon the coach was travelling at a dizzy speed six miles in the last half-hour when without having manifested the slightest premonitory symptom of unsteadiness sir ferdinando suddenly toppled sideways off his seat and fell head foremost into the road an unpleasant jolt awakened the slumbering passengers the coach was brought to a standstill the guard ran back with a light he found sir ferdinando still alive but unconscious blood was oozing from his mouth the back wheels of the coach had passed over his body breaking most of his ribs and both arms his skull was fractured in two places they picked him up but he was dead before they reached the next stage so perished sir ferdinando a victim to his own patriotism lady Lapith did not marry again but determined to devote the rest of her life to the well-being of her three children georgiana now five years old and emmeline and caroline twins of two henry wimbush paused and once more put on his pince-nez so much by way of introduction he said now i can begin to read about my grandfather one moment said mr scogan till i've refilled my pipe mr wimbush waited seated apart in a corner of the room ivor was showing mary his sketches of spirit life they spoke together in whispers mr scogan had lighted his pipe again fire away he said henry wimbush fired away it was in the spring of eighteen thirty three that my grandfather george wimbush first made the acquaintance of the three lovely lapiths as they were always called he was then a young man of twenty-two with curly yellow hair and a smooth pink face that was the mirror of his youthful and ingenuous mind he had been educated at harrow and christ church he enjoyed hunting and all other field sports and though his circumstances were comfortable to the verge of affluence his pleasures were temperate and innocent his father an east indian merchant had destined him for a political career and had gone to considerable expense in acquiring a pleasant little cornish borough as a twenty-first birthday gift for his son he was justly indignant when on the very eve of george's majority the reform bill of eighteen thirty two swept the borough out of existence the inauguration of george's political career had to be postponed at the time he got to know the lovely lapith he was waiting he was not at all impatient the lovely lapith did not fail to impress him georgiana the eldest with her black ringlets her flashing eyes her noble aquiline profile her swan-like neck and sloping shoulders was orientally dazzling and the twins with their delicately turned-up noses their blue eyes and chestnut hair were an identical pair of ravishingly english charmers their conversation at this first meeting proved however to be so forbidding that but for the invincible attraction exercised by their beauty george would never have had the courage to follow up the acquaintance the twins looking up their noses at him with an air of languid superiority asked him what he thought of the latest french poetry and whether he liked the indiana of george Sand, what was almost worse was the question with which georgiana opened her conversation with him in music she asked leaning forward and fixing him with her large dark eyes are you a classicist or a transcendentalist george did not lose his presence of mind he had enough appreciation of music to know that he hated anything classical and so with a promptitude which did him credit he replied i am a transcendentalist georgiana smiled bewitchingly i am glad she said so am i you went to hear paganini last week of course the prayer of moses ah she closed her eyes do you know anything more transcendental than that no said george i don't he hesitated was about to go on speaking and then decided that after all it would be wiser not to say what was in fact true that he enjoyed above all paganini's farmyard imitations the man had made his fiddle bray like an ass cluck like a hen grunt squeal bark neigh quack bellow and growl that last item in george's estimation had almost compensated for the tediousness of the rest of the concert he smiled with pleasure at the thought of it yes decidedly he was no classicist in music he was a thoroughgoing transcendentalist george followed up this first introduction by paying a call on the young ladies and their mother who occupied during the season a small but elegant house in the neighbourhood of berkeley square lady Lapith made a few discreet inquiries and having found that george's financial position character and family were all passably good she asked him to dine she hoped and expected that her daughters would all marry into the peerage but being a prudent woman she knew it was advisable to prepare for all contingencies george wimbush she thought would make an excellent second string for one of the twins at this first dinner george's partner was emmeline they talked of nature emmeline protested that to her high mountains were a feeling and the hum of human cities torture george agreed that the country was very agreeable but held that london during the season also had its charms he noticed with surprise and a certain solicitous distress that miss emmeline's appetite was poor that it didn't in fact exist two spoonfuls of soup a morsel of fish no bird no meat and three grapes that was her whole dinner he looked from time to time at her two sisters georgiana and caroline seemed to be quite as abstemious they waved away whatever was offered them with an expression of delicate disgust shutting their eyes and averting their faces from the proffered dish as though the lemon sole the duck the loin of veal the trifle were objects revolting to the sight and smell george who thought the dinner capital ventured to comment on the sister's lack of appetite pray don't talk to me of eating said emmeline drooping like a sensitive plant we find it so coarse so unspiritual my sisters and i one can't think of one's soul while one is eating george agreed one couldn't but one must live he said alas emmeline sighed one must death is very beautiful don't you think she broke a corner off a piece of toast and began to nibble at it languidly but since as you say one must live she made a little gesture of resignation luckily a very little suffices to keep one alive she put down her corner of toast half eaten george regarded her with some surprise she was pale but she looked extraordinarily healthy he thought so did her sisters perhaps if you were really spiritual you needed less food he clearly was not spiritual after this he saw them frequently they all liked him from lady Lapith downwards true he was not very romantic or poetical but he was such a pleasant unpretentious kind-hearted young man that one couldn't help liking him for his part he thought them wonderful wonderful especially georgiana he enveloped them all in a warm protective affection for they needed protection they were altogether too frail too spiritual for this world they never ate they were always pale they often complained of fever they talked much and lovingly of death they frequently swooned georgiana was the most ethereal of all of the three she ate least swooned most often talked most of death and was the palest with a pallor that was so startling as to appear positively artificial at any moment it seemed she might loose her precarious hold on this material world and become all spirit to george the thought was a continual agony if she were to die she contrived however to live through the season and that in spite of the numerous balls routs and other parties of pleasure which in company with the rest of the lovely trio, she never failed to attend in the middle of july the whole household moved down to the country george was invited to spend the month of august at crome the house party was distinguished in the list of visitors figured the names of two marriageable young men of title george had hoped that country air repose and natural surroundings might have restored to the three sisters their appetites and the roses of their cheeks he was mistaken for dinner the first evening georgiana only ate an olive two or three salted almonds and half a peach she was as pale as ever during the meal she spoke of love true love she said being infinite and eternal can only be consummated in eternity indiana and sir rodolphe celebrated the mystic wedding of their souls by jumping into niagara love is incompatible with life the wish of two people who truly love one another is not to live together but to die together come come my dear said lady Lapith, stout and practical what would become of the next generation pray if all the world acted on your principles mamma georgiana protested and dropped her eyes in my young days lady Lapith went on i should have been laughed out of countenance if i'd said a thing like that but then in my young days souls weren't as fashionable as they are now and we didn't think death was at all poetical it was just unpleasant mamma emmeline and caroline implored in unison in my young days lady lapeth was launched into her subject nothing it seemed could stop her now in my young days if you didn't eat people told you you needed a dose of rhubarb nowadays there was a cry georgiana had swooned sideways onto lord Timpany's shoulder it was a desperate expedient but it was successful lady Lapith was stopped The days passed in an uneventful round of pleasures of all the gay party george alone was unhappy lord timpany was paying his court to georgiana and it was clear that he was not unfavourably received george looked on and his soul was a hell of jealousy and despair the boisterous company of the young men became intolerable to him he shrank from them seeking gloom and solitude one morning having broken away from them on some vague pretext he returned to the house alone the young men were bathing in the pool below their cries and laughter floated up to him making the quiet house seem lonelier and more silent the lovely sisters and their mamma still kept their chambers they did not customarily make their appearance till luncheon so that the male guests had the morning to themselves george sat down in the hall and abandoned himself to thought at any moment she might die at any moment she might become lady Timpany. It was terrible, terrible. If she died then he would die too, he would go to seek her beyond the grave. If she became Lady Timpany, ah, then the solution of the problem would not be so simple. If she became Lady Timpany, it was a horrible thought. But then suppose she were in love with Timpany, though it seemed incredible that anyone could be in love with Timpany, suppose her life depended on Timpany. Suppose she couldn't live without him he was fumbling his way along this clueless labyrinth of suppositions when the clock struck twelve on the last stroke like an automaton released by the turning clockwork a little maid holding a large covered tray popped out of the door that led from the kitchen regions into the hall from his deep armchair george watched her himself it was evident unobserved with an idle curiosity she pattered across the room and came to a halt in front of what seemed a blank expanse of panelling she reached out her hand and to george's extreme astonishment a little door swung open revealing the foot of a winding staircase turning sideways in order to get her tray through the narrow opening the little maid darted in with a rapid crab-like motion the door closed behind her with a click a minute later it opened again and the maid without her tray hurried back across the hall and disappeared in the direction of the kitchen george tried to recompose his thoughts but an invincible curiosity drew his mind towards the hidden door the staircase the little maid it was in vain he told himself that the matter was none of his business that to explore the secrets of that surprising door that mysterious staircase within would be a piece of unforgivable rudeness and indiscretion it was in vain for five minutes he struggled heroically with his curiosity but at the end of that time he found himself standing in front of the innocent sheet of panelling through which the little maid had disappeared a glance sufficed to show him the position of the secret door secret he perceived only to those who looked with a careless eye it was just an ordinary door let in flush with the panelling no latch nor handle betrayed its position but an unobtrusive catch sunk in the wood invited the thumb george was astonished that he had not noticed it before now he had seen it it was so obvious almost as obvious as the cupboard door in the library with its lines of imitation shelves and its dummy books he pulled back the catch and peeped inside the staircase of which the degrees were made not of stone but of blocks of ancient oak wound up and out of sight a slit-like window admitted the daylight he was at the foot of the central tower and the little window looked out over the terrace they were still shouting and splashing in the pool below george closed the door and went back to his seat but his curiosity was not satisfied indeed this partial satisfaction had but whetted its appetite where did the staircase lead what was the errand of the little maid it was no business of his he kept repeating no business of his he tried to read but his attention wandered a quarter past twelve sounded on the harmonious clock suddenly determined george rose crossed the room opened the hidden door and began to ascend the stairs he passed the first window corkscrewed round and came to another he paused for a moment to look out his heart beat uncomfortably as though he were affronting some unknown danger what he was doing he told himself was extremely ungentlemanly horribly underbred he tiptoed onward and upward one turn more than half a turn and a door confronted him he halted before it listened he could hear no sound putting his eye to the keyhole he saw nothing but a stretch of white sunlit wall emboldened he turned the handle and stepped across the threshold there he halted petrified by what he saw mutely gaping in the middle of a pleasantly sunny little room it is now priscilla's boudoir mr Wimbush remarked parenthetically stood a small circular table of mahogany crystal porcelain and silver all the shining apparatus of an elegant meal were mirrored in its polished depths the carcass of a cold chicken a bowl of fruit a great ham deeply gashed to its heart of tenderest white and pink the brown cannon-ball of a cold plum pudding a slender hock bottle and a decanter of claret jostled one another for a place on this festive board and round the table sat the three sisters the three lovely lapiths eating at george's sudden entrance they had all looked towards the door and now they sat petrified by the same astonishment which kept george fixed and staring georgiana who sat immediately facing the door gazed at him with dark enormous eyes behind the thumb and forefinger of her right hand she was holding a drumstick of the dismembered chicken her little finger elegantly crooked stood apart from the rest of her hand her mouth was open but the drumstick had never reached its destination it remained suspended frozen in mid-air the other two sisters had turned round to look at the intruder caroline still grasped her knife and fork emmeline's fingers were round the stem of her claret-glass for what seemed a very long time george and the three sisters stared at one another in silence they were a group of statues then suddenly there was movement georgiana dropped her chicken-bone caroline's knife and fork clattered on her plate the movement propagated itself grew more decisive emmeline sprang to her feet uttering a cry the wave of panic reached george he turned and mumbling something unintelligible as he went rushed out of the room and down the winding stairs he came to a standstill in the hall and there all by himself in the quiet house he began to laugh at luncheon it was noticed that these sisters ate a little more than usual georgiana toyed with some french beans and a spoonful of calves-foot jelly i feel a little stronger to-day she said to lord timpany when he congratulated her on this increase of appetite a little more material she added with a nervous laugh looking up she caught george's eye a blush suffused her cheeks and she looked hastily away in the garden that afternoon they found themselves for a moment alone you won't tell anyone george promise you won't tell anyone she implored it would make us look so ridiculous and besides eating is unspiritual isn't it say you won't tell anyone i will said george brutally i'll tell everyone unless it's blackmail i don't care said george i'll give you twenty-four hours to decide lady Lapith was disappointed of course she had hoped for better things for timpani and a coronet but george after all wasn't so bad they were married at the new year my poor grandfather mr wimbush added as he closed his book and put away his pince-nez whenever i read in the papers about oppressed nationalities i think of him he relighted his cigar it was a maternal government highly centralized and there were no representative institutions henry wimbush ceased speaking in the silence that ensued ivor's whispered commentary on the spirit sketches once more became audible priscilla who had been dozing suddenly woke up what she said in the startled tones of one newly returned to consciousness "What?" jenny caught the words she looked up smiled nodded reassuringly it's about a ham she said what's about a ham what henry has been reading she closed the red notebook lying on her knees and slipped a rubber band round it i'm going to bed she announced and got up so am i said anne yawning but she lacked the energy to rise from her armchair the night was hot and oppressive round the open windows the curtains hung unmoving ivor fanning himself with the portrait of an astral being looked out into the darkness and drew a breath the air's like wool he declared it will get cooler after midnight said henry wimbush and cautiously added perhaps i shan't sleep i know priscilla turned her head in his direction the monumental coiffure nodded exorbitantly at her slightest movement you must make an effort she said when i can't sleep i concentrate my will i say i will sleep i am asleep and pop off i go that's the power of thought but does it work on stuffy nights ivor inquired i simply cannot sleep on a stuffy night nor can i said mary except out of doors out of doors what a wonderful idea in the end they decided to sleep on the towers mary on the western tower ivor on the eastern there was a flat expanse of leads on each of the towers and you could get a mattress through the trap-doors that opened onto them under the stars under the gibbous moon assuredly they would sleep the mattresses were hauled up sheets and blankets were spread and an hour later the two insomniasts each on his separate tower were crying their goodnights across the dividing gulf on mary the sleep-compelling charm of the open air did not work with its expected magic even through the mattress one could not fail to be aware that the leads were extremely hard then there were noises the owls screeched tirelessly and once roused by some unknown terror all the geese of the farmyard burst into a sudden frenzy of cackling the stars in the gibbous moon demanded to be looked at and when one meteorite had streaked across the sky you could not help waiting open-eyed and alert for the next time passed the moon climbed higher and higher in the sky mary felt less sleepy than she had when she first came out she sat up and looked over the parapet had ivor been able to sleep she wondered and as though in answer to her mental question from behind the chimney-stack at the farther end of the roof a white form noiselessly emerged a form that in the moonlight was recognizably ivor's spreading his arms to right and left like a tightrope dancer he began to walk forward along the roof tree of the house he swayed terrifyingly as he advanced mary looked on speechlessly perhaps he was walking in his sleep suppose he were to wake up suddenly now if she spoke or moved it might mean his death she dared look no more but sank back to her pillows she listened intently for what seemed an immensely long time there was no sound then there was a patter of feet on the tiles followed by a scrabbling noise and a whispered damn and suddenly ivor's head and shoulders appeared above the parapet one leg followed then the other he was on the leads mary pretended to wake up with a start oh she said what are you doing here i couldn't sleep he explained so i came along to see if you couldn't one gets bored by oneself on a tower don't you find it so it was light before five long narrow clouds barred the east their edges bright with orange fire the sky was pale and watery with the mournful scream of a soul in pain a monstrous peacock flying heavily up from below alighted on the parapet of the tower ivor and mary started broad awake catch him cried ivor jumping up we'll have a feather the frightened peacock ran up and down the parapet in an absurd distress curtseying and bobbing and clucking his long tail swung ponderously back and forth as he turned and turned again then with a flap and swish he launched himself upon the air and sailed magnificently earthward with a recovered dignity but he had left a trophy Ivor had his feather a long lashed eye of purple and green of blue and gold He handed it to his companion an angel's feather he said mary looked at it for a moment gravely and intently her purple pajamas clothed her with an ampleness that hid the lines of her body she looked like some large comfortable unjointed toy a sort of teddy bear but a teddy bear with an angel's head pink cheeks and hair like a bell of gold an angel's face the feather of an angel's wing somehow the whole atmosphere of the sunrise was rather angelic it's extraordinary to think of sexual selection she said at last looking up from her contemplation of the miraculous feather extraordinary ivor echoed i select you you select me what luck he put his arm round her shoulders and they stood looking eastward the first sunlight had begun to warm and colour the pale light of the dawn mauve pyjamas and white pyjamas they were a young and charming couple the rising sun touched their faces it was all extremely symbolic but then if you choose to think so nothing in this world is not symbolical profound and beautiful truth i must be getting back to my tower said ivor at last already i'm afraid so the varletry will soon be up and about ivor there was a prolonged and silent farewell and now said ivor i repeat my tight-rope stunt mary threw her arms round his neck you mustn't ivor it's dangerous please he had to yield at last to her entreaties all right he said i'll go down through the house and up at the other end he vanished through the trap-door into the darkness that still lurked within the shuttered house a minute later he had reappeared on the farther tower he waved his hand and then sank down out of sight behind the parapet from below in the house came the thin wasp-like buzzing of an alarm clock he had gone back just in time end of chapter nineteen recording by expatriate in bangor maine